So I'm curious, uh, do you have in your mind like the easy subjects that for you are just easy to talk to? Talk about, right, they're just certain subjects that you love and without fail, whenever it comes up in any setting, any situation, you're just off and running, you can talk about it. Uh, for me, it has more often than not been sports, right? Uh, I love talking about sports, always have. So if I find myself, you drop me in one of those situations where I don't know anybody, um, I kind of go fishing. I go fishing for the sports fan. I drop some hints out there, and man, when I finally get a bite, I'm off and running. I'm like, I got one, and we can just talk about sports for as long as we need. That tends to be my go-to default and easy subject. I was talking to my wife about this. I said, what, what's it for you? She said, well, probably anything related to having kids, parenting, schools, activities. This seems to be what moms talk about, so that kind of tends to be her go-to topic. I'd probably add to her list anything that's a true crime situation in pop culture. Uh, she'd probably love to talk to you about that as well. Uh, so what's yours, right? We, we all have these easy subjects that are just so natural for us to talk about. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, we have subjects in conversations that are really difficult to talk about, right? Uh, we have certain subjects and issues that we know that when we go into a conversation, it can be pretty charged. Um, and, and we're pretty aware of these. And, and they emerge in a lot of different settings and situations. We see these at home, we see them at work, we see them with friends, we see them in a number of different arenas. And uh, those can be difficult to navigate. And, and I know like in certain situations in our marriage, we've got a particular set of issues that we just know when they come up, it's gonna have greater potential for conflict or disagreement. And so we have to be really careful with how we approach those conversations. Uh, and there have been times where in our marriage we've, we have not been very careful, we haven't been thoughtful, we haven't been intentional, and we say something uh, a little carelessly, a little haphazardly, and it leads to that inevitable conflict. Uh, but then there are other times where we approach it with great sensitivity and we're able to navigate and mitigate that potential conflict. Um, when we've thought about how to approach difficult subjects and conversations, things that we talk about at home and that I've often also shared with the staff is a good rule of thumb is time, tone, and place, right? If you choose the right time to have a conversation, the right tone, the right place, you, you tend to be able to talk about just about anything. But if you get one of those variables off, right, just one of them, then it can lead to some level of disagreement and conflict. You get more than one, it can be destructive. Now, why do I say all this? I share this with you this morning because the text that we're going to be looking at is going to um, inevitably lead us into a number of very difficult issues, uh, charged subjects. Uh, let, me, let me read for you the list um, of the issues that are going to be either directly or indirectly referred to uh, just by nature of reading this text. Marriage, male and female relationships in general, singleness, family, childbearing, abortion, infertility, parenting, divorce, sexual intimacy, pornography, gender identity, sexual orientation, patriarchy and the question of the created order, women in leadership, just to name a few. Right? And all the guests are like, wow, glad we came today. <laughs> all of these are indirectly or directly referenced in the passages we're looking at today. Uh, so it is an incredibly difficult text to teach. And, and not just because it's loaded with all those issues, but here are some of the other challenges that, that we have to navigate this morning. One is that I know 
as well as you do, that whenever we have these sorts of difficult subjects, more often than not, we have predetermined convictions about these things. Right? And so whenever the, the issue comes up, no matter the setting, whether it's in church or at home or in a public arena, we're, we're looking for something that confirms our predetermined beliefs. It's called confirmation bias. So when we hear something that we know confirms what we believe, we rally to it and go, there it is. Yes. Validate my position. We hear something that is counter to what we believe, then we tend to use those exchanges as a way to just uh, vilify the opposing side and further allow us to be entrenched in our view. So I've, I've got to somehow broach these subjects that I know we all have thoughts and opinions on, and believe it or not, y'all all don't agree with each other, right? And somehow work through that. In addition to that, I have a limitation of time. We are not going to go into every single one of those issues that I just read off to you in detail. We don't have time to do that, right? Uh, we have a, a limitation of this being a monologue, right, that I just get to speak one direction. I don't get a chance to hear your questions, for you to ask for clarity, for us to dialogue about it. So that's another challenge as well. So this is not easy, and so I'm sure some of you are going, well, then why are you talking about it, man? Wouldn't you just be easier just to skip over this? Why bring these issues up in church? Right, and run the risk of conflict, division, hurt feelings. Well, the reason is because, honestly, I believe if you can't talk about things in the context of community, difficult things, then what kind of community do you really have? Right, if you, if you create a false sense of peace, but a peace that can't withstand some form of difficult conversation, then do you really even have community? Avoiding these subjects weakens your community. It doesn't strengthen it. Similarly, uh, it minimizes our chance to really look at the gospel. Right? We look at Romans. We just finished our journey through Romans, and we saw numerous times Paul take on numerous difficult subjects, disputable matters, as he refers to them in uh, Romans 14. And he doesn't avoid them. He doesn't skirt around them. He uses them as an opportunity to say there is something greater that binds you, and it's Jesus. So, so this allows us to not just strengthen our community, but strengthen our faith, to, to recognize that Jesus is greater than any issue or any subject that we come up against. So, so to me, we need to talk about it so that we can strengthen our community and our faith. Now, how do we do it, though? How do we go about this? Well, time, tone, and place. Is it the right time to have this conversation? Um, I would say yes, for a couple of reasons. One is because it's in the text, right? Um, I'm not gonna skip over things that are in the text for the sake of having an easier conversation, right? My commitment to you is to present and teach the word of God to the best of my ability and, and for us to sit on it together, sit under it together, right? It's in the text, so we're not gonna skip over it. And, and I would tell you that my goal and my uh, approach to this today is to not focus on all the subjects, but to just teach the scripture and, and, and present to you, here's what I believe the scripture says. And there will be moments where you see direct implications and indirect implications to all these different subjects I just referenced, but it's in the text, and so we're going to teach the text. We believe that uh, the Bible is God's word, and, and we are uh, a, a scripturally guided church right, biblically guided church. So that's one reason that I think it's the right time. Another reason that I think it's the right time is because this conversation, these conversations, these subjects are all around us. 
They are taking place in every other arena of life. And if the church grows silent on them, I would say that that would be a measure of irresponsibility, right? A, a measure of insensitivity to the time within which we live. That if culture is talking about it, if all the other arenas are talking about it, and we're countering it in so many other places, then we, we need to be able to talk about it here. It's the right time. It's the right time to have the conversation. Now, I will say there are limits to time, so I would encourage you, uh, if you want more time after today, come to Theology Matters on Wednesday at 6.30, where there can be more dialogue. We can hear your questions. We can talk about it more. Send me an email. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to breakfast. I love to eat. And we can talk about this sort of stuff over a table, and we can have more conversation. But it is the right time. I'm going to try to strike the right tone this morning. Uh, the tone that I am aiming for is gracious accountability. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Historically, when these difficult issues have come up within the church, the church has failed on two different arenas, either has failed in the arena of doctrine or conduct. What I mean by that is that we fail in the arena of doctrine when we begin to grow nervous about how the world might see us, the perception of the masses, fearful of certain labels, fearful of, of, of being considered to be judgmental and all these different things, and, and then we don't have a familiarity with the scripture, we haven't actually consulted the scripture, we have a lower view of the scripture, and so we compromise doctrine. And, and that is not what we should do. We see this time and time again throughout the, no, the New Testament. Let me just read to you a few passages. Titus 2 tells us, you must, however, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. First Timothy 1, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines and long any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. 1 Timothy 4, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Doctrine matters, and we can't compromise it. However, the ditch on the other side of the road where the church has often failed and people in leadership have often failed is we fail in the exchange for conduct or exchange for doctrine when we fail in conduct. And we, we begin to speak with a certain hostility, with a certain anger, with a certain judgment, with a certain insensitivity to all the things we've already talked about in this series. Right? Valuing the human dignity in every single person, no matter what. Right? We can't set those things aside and too often the church has in the name of doctrine. And so my goal today is to address both of those and have this conversation with gracious accountability. Right, a grace that tells us none of us is perfect. This is not one particular issue. This isn't one particular sin. All of us struggle and have fallen short. All of us need grace. And our words and our conversation needs to be seasoned with grace. But we also need accountability. We have to strive for the things that God has put before us, and we can do so in a loving way and in a gracious way. That's the tone that I'm aiming for today. Is it the right place? Well, put very simply, this is a sacred space. And what we'll discover throughout the course of the morning is these are sacred conversations. And so this is, in my opinion, one of the most perfect places to have this conversation. If you can't have these conversations in church, then where can you have them? And so here's my request from you as we begin this morning. I want you to meet me in this moment. 
I want you to meet me in this sacred space. I, I want you to recognize that for all of us, we have predetermined convictions. We have these, these tendencies to approach anything that might be a charged subject to come with defense, to come with a certain apprehension. And I want us to take all of those things and lay them aside. Just set them aside. And let's enter into the sacred space and let's ask the Spirit of the Lord to guide us and to trust him above all else. Pray for me specifically that I handle this well and faithfully to the glory of God the Father. Because at the end of the day, I believe fully that I will stand before him and give an account for how I have led his church. And so I, I want to do this honorably for him more than any other. I wanna strike the right thing, I wanna strike the right tone, the right posture, so that he can be glorified. So let's meet together, and let's ask him to lead us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you, and we come before you dependent upon you, and dependent upon you alone. And I ask that your spirit would guide the hearts and minds of everyone that is gathered in this sacred space today. God, that you would help us to surrender apprehensions, that you would help us to surrender any preconceived notions or ideas, and that we would be open to what it means to be a strong community, to, to believe in a strong gospel that allows us to take on very difficult subjects, but to do so in a manner that is gracious, to do so in a manner that is loving. But we know, God, that the only way that happens is if we set aside our flesh and lean upon your spirit. So we ask that your spirit would fill this place, fill this room, God, that you would lead me, guide me, and ultimately be glorified today as we marvel at the work of your hands and who you are and help our hearts to long for the things that you have designed for us and help us to see clearly the way that you lead. We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Okay, let's get to it. We've been talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. And we've talked extensively about why we even ask this question of identity and who I am. We've talked about how culture tends to answer that question of identity and purpose and talked about where we've seen this shift, where we have now kind of operated in this understanding where we've separated physical from spiritual that has allowed us to instinctively, according to culture, to look within for authority rather than looking beyond ourselves for authority. So we find truth, we find meaning, we find purpose and fulfillment all by looking within. This is how culture is telling us to answer this question of identity and purpose. But then we looked in Genesis 1 and 2. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And we took some time to figure out how is it even explained, how is it understood? And, and then we've seen the implications, implications on human dignity and worth, implications on work like we covered uh, last week. And today we're going to talk about the implications on relationships. Now, when I say relationships, yes, this means relationships, generally speaking, but what you'll discover is that we're really going to focus in on the most intimate and most meaningful relationships that we have and, and how God has designed those to bring about the flourishing of his image, okay? It's going to take us some time to get through this today, so bear with me, uh, but just know my goal is not to make sure you get to lunch on time. My goal is to teach the word of God. Okay, so we'll do it, and we'll do it well. Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and let's marvel together at what God has prepared for us here in terms of relationships. 
26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's stop there. We talked about this passage uh, over the last several weeks and we've highlighted different aspects of it, specifically the idea of responsibility and rule. We talked about a lot of different things and one of the things that we covered several weeks ago is the fact that God announces the creation of humanity by using the plural form. Let us make. And we ask ourselves, why does he say it that way? Why does he all of a sudden use the plural? And several weeks ago, we talked about a couple of different options. The one option is to consider God making an announcement to the heavenly court like he does in Job. Almost this idea of him turning to the angels and saying, now let us make mankind. That he's the one doing the activity, but they are watching it all take place. And he speaks in the plurality to the heavenly court. Other interpretations would suggest that this is speaking to the triune nature of God. Right, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that he is three in one. So when he says, let us make, is a reference to the triune nature of God. These are all worthy, incredible uh, points of view, in my personal opinion. But the other thing that we said, and we didn't go into in great depth, was the fact that God is, is speaking in the plurality here is actually anticipating the plurality of the image of God. Right, because where it leads is to discover that those who are made in the image of God is not in singular form, but in plurality. It is not just in man, it's in man and woman. It's in male and female. The image of God takes shape in plurality. What we see at the very beginning is that God revealing his image and creating and instilling his image in male and female shows us that the image of God was designed for community. It was designed for relationship, right? It was never designed to be experienced just in isolation. The image of God was birthed in community. We were made to be relational beings, to create a relationship with one another, with the created world, excuse me, the created world, and with God himself, right? We are, we are created for community. Stanley Grins, uh, again, one of the ones that I've referenced numerous times throughout this series, offers a good perspective. He says, there is a final and central conclusion. The divine image is a shared and corporate reality. Consequently, each person can be related to the image of God only within the context of community. Only in fellowship with others can we show what God is like. Right, that's really remarkable, that the image of God is designed for a communal relational experience. Right? And one of the things that you can see, and it's painful to observe it, is the way in which loneliness is so painful to our existence. You, you watch the way the image of God moves in the opposite direction of flourishing. Watch someone struggle with loneliness, right? What, what creates happiness, and studies have shown this, that, that the key to happiness is typically relationship, right? We are created for community. We are created to be relational beings. The image of God was designed for relationships. So let me be very clear. Any idea, any worldview that suggests it just needs to be men or it just needs to be women is unbiblical. It is not the path towards the flourishing of the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have it 
individually, but that it flourishes in community, right? So we see that already just in the creation of male and female. Now, moving beyond that, let's see how God uh, references the need for this and the importance of this community. You can go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So we know that Genesis 2 is just another compliment to Genesis 1. It's explaining in greater detail how Genesis 1 unfolds. So we can read this portion of Genesis 2 in, in concert with what we've just read in chapter 1. And we see how this begins to work together. And what is a major disruption, if you're reading through the creation account, is that all of a sudden, after this constant refrain of it is good, it is good, it is good, we now get a massive disruption with God saying it is not good. And what is not good is the absence of relationship. The man is alone, re-emphasizing this idea of us being created to be relational beings, to be in community. Loneliness alone is not what we were designed for. We are created for relationship. And so God looks upon man, he sees the loneliness, he says something's lacking, something's off, something's missing, and he makes this declaration, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. This is a really important verse that helps us understand what God's goal and his intent is. What does he mean by helper, right? Um, the word helper very simply means assistance, right? Mankind needs assistance to do all these things that I've asked him to do, the blessing to do. We need some form of assistance. Now, how do you picture that assistance and the nature of that relationship working, right? Because some have taken this idea of helper to imply that whoever is the helpmate is weaker and more of a servant role to assist man in fulfilling all of these commands and blessings. But to do so, I would argue, uh, minimizes and has a, a misunderstanding of the word helper. Right? So the word simply means assistance, but when you look at how this Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament, uh, it typically falls into one of two categories. It is either referencing military aid or God himself as the one who is providing the help, right? Let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate this. The first one in terms of military aid, it comes in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 21 through 22. Now this is a part where David has overcome his struggle with Saul, and after that conflict, there's a reference to all the men that helped him in these battles, helped him survive, helped him overcome, and it's referencing these men that served in that role for David. It says they helped David against raiding bands for all of them were brave warriors, and they were commanded in his army. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. You see it there in context of military aid. Consider now how it's used in terms of God being the source of help. Also, from Chronicles, this time 2 Chronicles chapter 32. This is Hezekiah. Hezekiah and the people are worried about the Assyrian army and the threat that they are posing. And so Hezekiah does some things to encourage his people. Here's what it says in 32, verse 6 through 8. Hezekiah appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, Be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is, the only, is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Isn't that amazing? And so this is how the word is typically used, one of these two categories. Carmen Joy Imes, who writes Being God's Image, I've referenced her numerous times as well, indicates that in more of the around the 90 different uses of this term for helper in the Old Testament, it is never used to suggest a subservient role of some servant uh, uh, adhering to a master or a slave to an owner, right? It's always an ally, right? It's a partner. It's an assistance to that level. So for us to take this idea of helper and assume a certain weakness is is to misunderstand the word itself. This is further um, accentuated by the word suitable, okay? So a helper that is suitable, to him. The word suitable means he matches him. A more literal translation is like opposite. All right, I love that. A helper that is like opposite. Now that's hard for our brains to get around because it's literally contradictory, right? But what God is saying is that we need to create this helper that is like him, right? That, that in the same way that he carries my image, she needs to carry my image. There needs to be a similar likeness to one another. There is a similarity. There is a likeness that we all share. And yet, she is opposite, totally different, fulfilling what is lacking, right? She is like me, but she is opposite to me. He is like me, but he is opposite to me. That is what it means to be suitable. They are complementary to one another. Now, there's a charged word, isn't there? Right, because we all know in these conversations there's kind of two different camps, complementarianism and egalitarianism, right? And we have our predisposed ideas in terms of what that means. And a lot of times the complementarian camp is gonna advocate for certain male headship and dominion, right? And so we, we tend to gravitate towards that. I'm asking you to set that aside because the word compliment is actually a great word. Don't you like being complimented? It's a good word. And there's something incredibly beautiful about what's going on here. The artistry of God is on display. He has made male and female like one another, but opposite one another. What is lacking in man is fulfilled in woman. What is lacking in woman is fulfilled in man. They are like opposites. His artistry is on display. And so again, we need to recognize that any time we embrace this idea that men can do anything that women can do, or women can do anything that men can do, diminishes the distinctive qualities that God has fashioned in male and female. Those distinctive qualities need to be celebrated and affirmed, not minimized. Right? She is like opposite, a helper that is suitable. So this is what God seeks to create, so what does he do? Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for he, she was taken out of man. All right, so this is really, really neat. So God causes man to fall into a deep sleep, and he does this to help accentuate that this is God's activity, right? This is not man 
creating. This is not man helping God create. Man is asleep. This is all through the handiwork and the power of God. And so he creates woman by taking from man's side, from his rib. And there are a lot of different discussions as to why from the side, why the rib. And there's not a lot of uniformity in terms of why that is the case. A lot of different opinions out there, a lot of different viewpoints. Here's the one that tends to resonate with me. Um, It's just my personal view. I don't know that you can uh, verify this confidently and uh, without question from the text, but I do think it speaks to some of the context that we see around it, right? That it speaks to the partnership and the like opposite nature that God is after, right? It's, it's fulfilling what we just talked about in those previous verses, right? As one scholar put it, it was not that he would make woman out of man's head that she would rule over him and nor out of his feet that he would trample upon her, but from his side that she would rule with him. And I love that imagery, right? And that could be part of what we see here. But God makes woman by taking from the rib, from the side, and then he presents her to man. And I read it with greater emphasis for a reason, because this is an eruption of praise from man. This is the first poem in the history of humanity. When man meets woman, it has all the characteristics of ancient Hebrew poetry, and he erupts and praise. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is terminology that was used by the Hebrews to refer to kinship. And so what we're seeing in that immediate response is that this is not just someone that gets to coexist with me, that I get to pass in the garden every once in a while. We are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. Right? It's anticipating what God's about to bring into greater clarity here in just a few verses. And then he says, and she shall be called woman, for out of man she was made. And he names her. Now this is really interesting and also a very delicate way to talk through this because I told you last week that whenever you see the act of naming in the scripture, it implies authority, and that's true. And there have been many who have looked at this text and said, well, if Adam names Eve, if man names woman, then he has a certain authority over her. Right? Now let's break that down for a little bit by trying to cut through some of those preconceived ideas. I would say, yes, there is an element of authority here. Yes, the Bible teaches a created order. You see that not just here, you see that in other passages in Scripture, but we have to do diligent, thorough work to better understand the fall, to better understand the gospel, to better understand all these other teachings, to better understand what we mean by that, and all the ways that the world, and through the fall, and through brokenness, has distorted what that relationship looks like. So I I do believe it's there, and it's taught, but it can get easily confused, right? And so what we really need to see is that this is not a sort of authority that results in just immediate domination of man over woman or husband over wife, or male over female, right? Because if you were to take that sort of conclusion, you're negating everything else we've already talked about. Everything about male and female both being offered the responsibility to rule in chapter one, the idea of a helper that's suitable to him, even the reference, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the celebration of the sameness being made from the side. If you just take that one idea and use it as a justification for male authority, you've missed the full teaching of Genesis one and two. There's something more beautiful that's at play here with this authority. And we talked about this last week with the naming of the animals, right? When when Adam names the animals, it's not like he's just demonstrating this, this incredible power that he now gets to exert over them. What he's doing is he's filling the world with meaning. 
with language. Remember that? Right? He's bringing significance into it. He's giving the animals identity. He's calling them out of the background. And he's saying, I see you. I acknowledge you. And he's, he's establishing worth and identity in them. And he's doing the same thing here. This is an incredible accentuation of the worth and the value of the woman, not one that diminishes it. He's given her name. He's given her value. He's given her significance. He's given her identity in a beautiful and poetic way. In fact, this is another way to remind ourselves that Genesis 1 and 2 stands in a stark contrast to all the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. And one of the ways that it has that contrast by the way in which it establishes the value and worth of women. And so he names her, right, but in a way that brings value and worth. And then we get to see the implications of this creation, verse 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam, his wife, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, verse 25, in, in my view, is really a transitional statement that helps you anticipate uh, how far they fall in chapter 3. So we won't spend too much time talking about the implications of verse 25. I want to dive into verse 24 in particular. And so what we see is that now that this is created, male and female, and you see this reference, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, there is now something that has emerged, that it is for this reason that man will leave father and mother, right, forsake father and mother, and be united to his wife, cleave to his wife. This is where we get the term. It's the literal translation. He will leave and cleave. The word united means he will stick to. And what we discover is that God's creation here of male and female and all of these things that he has entrusted to them is resulting in the creation of marriage. Right? This, this beautiful, beautiful relationship. Right? And this relationship is marked with these characteristics of, of passion and permanence. Right? What I mean by that is there's a passion that tells you I'm leaving the family I had. I, I'm leaving mother and father for this, this new love, this greater connection. And yet there's this permanence because when I unite myself with her, there's no leaving. Right? There, there, it's not optional. This is permanent. I'm united. I'm sticking with her. I'm cleaving with her. And that idea of passion and permanence is further accentuated by the reference and they will become one flesh. Okay, now this has um, significant implications, and I want to work through a couple of them, okay? Um, so the fact that we now have this reference to one flesh does refer to the, the thing that we all are cognizant of and aware of, that in the creation of male and female, he has created us and designed us for sexual intimacy. And that is being referenced here, okay? Un unquestionably, right? And, and so... What we see, though, is that the fact that he has designed us with that sort of, of desire, with that sort of ability, he has shown us where that is to take place. That is to take place in a relationship that is marked with passion and permanence. And you and I live in a world and are surrounded by a culture that takes those impulses and those cravings and tries to couch them in arenas that are casual and temporary. And that's not what they were designed for, right? And so let me, let me try to, to drive this home a little bit, but being mindful of the fact that we have younger ears, okay? 
Let me give you uh, an analogy of sorts. Uh, essentially what culture has done, when we take uh, our, our, our sexual uh, cravings, the intimacy, the need for sexual relationships, and we take it out of a relationship that is marked with passion and permanence and into that which is casual and temporary, it's like going to the dollar store. Right? I don't know if you have young kids. You ever take your kids to the dollar store? Um, they love the dollar store. Right? Like they go in and their eyes bug out of their head. They're like, this is awesome. And they start running up and down the aisles like, I can get a car and I can get a ball and I can get chocolate and everything's just a dollar. And they love it. And they're like, man, look at all these cravings I get to have and get to fulfill. And they just get and consume and consume. And then they go home and they see all that they've purchased. And inevitably within the first few minutes, something either doesn't work the way that they thought it would or it breaks. And they feel very unfulfilled. And so they go back to the dollar store and they try again. I'm gonna buy this thing, I'm gonna buy this thing, I'm gonna do these things, right? And they try it again, they try to buy more and they come back and it's the same thing that happens. And eventually they realize, you know what, I should really probably stop going to the dollar store. It's a cheaper version. It's fleeting, it's fulfilling for a moment, but it ultimately doesn't fulfill. When we take that design and seek to satisfy those cravings, in anything beyond passion and permanence that is designed for man and woman, it's like going to the dollar store, right? And, and so we have to recognize the way that works. And part of the way that that works is the second point because that sort of relationship, that sort of intimacy leads to childbearing. Right? Now this is, this is remarkable, okay? This, this to me is, is so mind-blowing, the way that God does this. Because obviously, he said, increase the number, multiply, fill the earth, right? And we talked about how that's not just childbearing, but it is also childbearing, right? You can't take that out of it. It's more than that, but it includes that. How remarkable is it, church, listen to this, that he has given us his image, male and female, dependent upon one another, that then when we come together in that sort of relationship, we can create life in our image, in our likeness. Like, our children look like us. That's remarkable. Your children embody one flesh because they don't just represent you. They don't just look like you. They look like your spouse. They are the indicators of this union. And they do so in a way that allows us to marvel at the creation of life. And that only happens in this sort of context. It's remarkable. And, and what it does is show us that when God is making marriage, he's doing more than just making husband and wife. He's creating the space for son, daughter, brother and sister, mother and father. He's creating relationships. It has significant impact on what it means for childbearing, and filling the earth and seeing the flourishing that comes in that capacity. Right? So, so you see um, the significant implications in terms of that sort of fulfillment, 
um, that sort of childbearing. And then the last is to recognize that that becoming one flesh is not just physical, it's not just about intimacy, right? It's a fusing together that you find in a relationship that helps you know and to be fully known, right? To be known, um, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, right? That that is the relationship where no one else knows you, like your partner, your spouse, right? And, and so, like my wife, nobody, nobody knows me like she does. No one. Not my parents, not my children, no one. Right? And so this, this coming together is, is so rich and so meaningful. And that's the sort of construct that God has created. And, and so here's what blows my mind, church, is that what we see unfolding here is that essentially God's plan for, for giving us his image, his plan for allowing this sort of filling the earth for ruling, for dominion, his provision for food and for the garden, his provision of helpmate, community, relationship, the building block, right, the foundational structure for all of that to come into being is the family. For you to experience the deepest intimacy of relationship comes in the family. More than any, anywhere else, this, this past week, as many of you know, we celebrated, what is it, 22 years of 9-11, um, or remem- remembered it, right? And for whatever reason, we talked about it with our kids in greater detail this year, and I guess because of their age, it's just hit them differently. And so they've really wanted to talk more about it, and so for the last couple of days, we've been watching this special that was made by National Geographic and um, kind of goes back through the day, and we've been watching it with them and talking about it with them on the last couple of days. And one of the things that struck me as we were watching it just the other night is that when you're faced with that sort of tragedy and you're faced with the loss of human life, possibly losing your own, the two things that are so remarkable is the, the way in which so many people just helped strangers because they saw the inherent worth and value in every life. But every single person, whether their life was lost or they survived, every single one includes a testimony to that their impulse and their main thought was about their family. Hey, mom, it's me. I'm on this plane. I don't know what's going to happen. I just want you to know I love you. Hey, honey, it's me. Send this message to the kids. Let them know I love them. Over and over again, it shows us that the way our hearts are designed and the way that we best understand love through the context of relationships are through these relationships where we get to assign the word husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, mother, father. And that is all through the image of God. Okay, let me work us through some challenges now that I've established all of that. Here are the challenges. We don't live in the garden. As beautiful as it is, you and I both know that our stories could fill this room for days of the ways that we have fallen short of God's design, every single one of us. And there are reasons for that, a couple of reasons that I want to hit on, and I want to try to get us to a conclusion here. The reasons we struggle with it is the problem of idolatry, the problem of the fall, and the problem of expectation. Okay, so working through that, the problem of idolatry. What we see unfold in Genesis 3 is that the human heart's predisposition towards sin 
And, and when we eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, that is essentially saying, I want to determine good and evil for myself. I don't want to listen to God. I don't want to listen to what he calls good. I want to determine it for myself. That was the temptation. Do this and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's what we want. And that's what you see take place time and time again. That's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1, Romans 1 fits beautifully with Genesis 3. Right, it says, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. It's describing idolatry. It is interesting and yet not surprising that one of the first expressions of idolatry that is referenced in Romans 1 is related to sexual immorality and the relationships between men and women. Right, so what happens is that because we look within and we look to our own impulses, we look to our own desires, we, we look to our own definition of, of right and wrong and good and evil, it takes us to the dollar store. Man, we, we recreate our idea of, of how we can find fulfillment in intimacy, how we can find fulfillment in family. How, all of these, it takes us different ways. Man, we, we abuse these relationships. We, we don't become the fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and all these different things, right? And it's because of idolatry. It's because of the sinful heart within us. The other problem that we have is the fall, right? So what happens after we rebel in Genesis 3 is there's a curse, right? There's a curse that's leveled against man and woman and against the land, right? There, no longer will it just produce shrubs that produce fruit. Now it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Now by the sweat of the brow will you work and it'll be laborsome. Now there'll be chain, uh, pain and childbearing. You're going to desire for your husband. He's going to rule over you. These are all signs of the curse. Right? And so now we live in a world that maybe is not just a response of idolatry, but now we just struggle with things because it's a broken world. Right? Like, like I know there are people out there, and I've been this person sitting in the pews where you want to have kids and you can't. And you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and all the hope of family and experiencing those labels, and it feels like it's just out of your reach and constantly taken from you. And the pain that that creates. And that's the result of the fact that we live in a fallen world. That's not a result of your idolatry. It's not a result, it's just we live in a broken world, right? These things don't always hit the flourishing that they were designed to. The other problem we have is the problem of expectation. See, the other struggle that we make, and oftentimes the church falls victim to, is that we come to passages like Genesis 1 and 2, and we exalt marriage, and we exalt family. And that makes everybody that's single feel like they're less than makes everyone that doesn't have children feel like they're less than and that you'll never truly flourish in the image of God unless you have family, unless you get married. And we exalt these things to the detriment of what it really is trying to communicate to us. Right? Because these relationships, as beautiful as they are and as sacred as they are, they are not your savior, Jesus is. Your spouse will never save you. Your children will never save you. They are not the source of your hope. Jesus is. So we need to look to Jesus as that example who, let me remind you, was never married, was single, was never intimate with another person, and is the primary depiction of human flourishing in the image of God. Right, so what is this all intended to do? Let me, let me wrap this up with the hope that it points us to. See, the reason God has created these relationships and given them to us is because he is allowing us to discover what it means to love, right? That, that these most intimate relationships where we get to know and be known as, as 
father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, all these different things is where love really occurs. So let me speak a word of hope to you this morning because every single one of us is here in this. You can read Genesis 1 and 2 and it can be incredibly burdensome because of the mistakes that we've made or the failures we've experienced or the heartache that we've gone through. There are people in this room that are struggling with divorce. There are people in this room that are struggling with infertility. People in this room that have made all sorts of choices that have led us to to finding something outside of this relationship of passion and permanence. There's so many different expressions of where we fall short. And we could look at this and feel that much bigger, like just so infinite and just so, or not infinite, but so small, so broken, and all these different things. But Genesis 1 and 2 is really designed not to make you feel smaller, but to give you hope. It's not intended to, to keep you down. It's intended to lift you up. Let me explain to you how. Because when your heart cries out for those things, or when you experience these sorts of relationships, right, and you experience that sort of love, what it does is it awakens your heart to what things should be. What you're really longing for. What you're really longing for is love because you were created for love. You're longing for this life-changing, selfless, all-giving love. And these relationships, husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, mother, father, are all there to awaken your heart to this love. And what you discover when you encounter these problems in this world is that it points you to Jesus. And it points you that to the fact that your ultimate love is never really going to come to your family, but that your family points you to the most ultimate love. And when you look at Jesus, you discover this incredible hope that the heart may long for what it should be, and Jesus tells you it's what it will be. That this is where it's going. This is a beautiful mystery, right? Ephesians 5 gives us just a hint of it. Let me read it to you, right? Paul's talking about the relationship between husband and wife, and he quotes Genesis 2, 24, right? In verse 31, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He is pointing us to these relationships are pointing us to the relationship with God the Father. They're pointing us to the relationship with Christ and the hope that we have in Christ. And what we see is this incredible hope that we await for, right? That that what we begin to discover is that when we begin to see the way that this relationship is described in Revelation, when we see the way in which it all unfolds, is that this love comes to the greatest expression and fruition that we will ever know. Here's the way it's described in Revelation 19. A day when the roar of the multitude will cry out, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21. We will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And we will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
he who is seated on the throne will say, I'm making everything new. Amen? The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. And it is sacred, designed by God to be held in the highest esteem. Not that we would worship it here, but that we would long for it there. Knowing that the only way that sort of flourishing and that sort of life-changing, selfless, all-giving love is ever experienced is through the Lamb and his bride, through a Savior and his people, through the King of kings and his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we confess, God, there are so many times we fall short of embodying the sort of flourishing that you've called us to. God, that we find ourselves tripped up over our own mistakes, our own ideas. God, and that we oftentimes lose sight of what it is that you design and desire for us. So we come before you, God, and we confess that ultimately what we long for is you. What we desire is you. Thank you for creating us in such a way that we get to use words like husband and wife, son and daughter, brother and sister, mother and father. Thank you for allowing your image to bring to life these sorts of relationships. Forgive us for the times where we misunderstand or misrepresent them and allow us to do everything within our power to embody them in a way that brings flourishing not just to our lives but the world around us, to live in such a way that points people to the hope that we have in Jesus. God, may we set our own impulses aside and once again acknowledge you as our Lord, our Savior, our King, the one to whom we will follow and the value of being a part of his church, both now and forevermore, that we long for the day that we get to be with you forever. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.